This is Matt Freitas, and you're listening to the Late Night History Podcast. Tonight's guest is Sierra Brown, a current firefighter at a firehouse in San Diego, California. Sierra has lived quite the adventurous lifestyle, from living on a sailboat in Mexico, to competing in 100-mile ultramarathon races, to spending several fire seasons as a wildland firefighter. On this episode, expect to learn the history of the hutshot crews in which Sierra was assigned to. The hutshots are considered a national resource and respond to wildfires all around the U.S. We also talk about how Sierra became a smoke jumper at age 38. And for anyone who knows anything about wildland firefighting, smoke jumpers are considered one of the most elite units in service. Later in the episode, we talk about how Sierra has found outside outlets to challenge herself, including her latest ultramarathon called Man Against Horse Race. Outside of running, Sierra utilizes the therapeutic outlet of spearfishing, which you'll learn all about in this episode. So here is episode 23 with Sierra Brown. Can you start off with uh, what was your childhood like? So I, I moved around quite a bit. Uh, a lot of people thought I was a military brat, but <laughs> was actually uh, my both my parents were in education, and so I was I was born in Omaha, Nebraska. Only lived there for a few months, and then we moved to Wyoming. Um, and we were there just for a couple years. Then we moved to Fort Collins, Colorado. And my dad got his PhD. My mom was teaching math. And then my dad ended up getting a job in, as a professor in Flagstaff, Arizona. And so we moved there and I spent the majority of my like elementary school years there. And then my parents got divorced and I ended up moving to Albuquerque. So my mom, Albuquerque, New Mexico, my mom took me with her and then my dad, my brother stayed in Flagstaff. And um, I ended up going back and forth between Flagstaff and, uh, and Albuquerque. Like, I mean, by the time I was 11 or 12, all through high school on the train, on the Amtrak and on the Greyhound, just going back and forth. Um, or my parents would like, meet in Gallup, New Mexico in the middle and do the the switch. Like my brother would get out of my dad's car and I would get out of my mom's car and we would just <laughs> do like five minute trade and go our opposite ways. So I had, I, I think I um, learned to be pretty independent when I was young and I kind of spent a lot of time just doing my own thing and, and but also enjoying traveling. Um. And when I was in say my junior year of high school, um, my dad was taking a sabbatical and he said, Hey, do you want to go somewhere, spend the year? And, and, um, so we looked at a map of the world and we decided to go to Perth, Australia. I was 
obsessed with surfing for some reason. It was like, uh, <laughs> have you ever seen the movie North Shore? I'm not, no. It's, it's about a guy who grows up in Phoenix, Arizona, and learns to surf in a wave pool and then like wins a contest and gets sent to Hawaii <laughs> to wake up Colburn. But anyway, like I, I was, it was like that. I was just, I'd seen it on TV, you know, magazines. I just want to be out of water. I want to live in California. <laughs> and, and before we so go into, we went to, Sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry to cut you off. But before we go into Australia, uh, did you play like any sports growing up or were you like an outdoorsy kid? Yes. Uh, well, like I grew up backpacking. My parents, I mean, my first memories, like they were always backpacking. My dad had one of those those packs where he put me on the, the top of the pack and sit kind of on his shoulders. And we were, they were, that was in, in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. And so um I really did spend a lot of time outside me and and I have one brother so he's uh grown up and a lot a lot of time out in in the woods I guess (laughs) um and then when when I was in Flagstaff I I I we always been hiking the Grand Canyon since I was little and um I started mountain biking and I did that competitively through high school um, and I skied, I started skiing when I was little, but you know, I didn't, I didn't really play any like traditional team sports or anything, mostly mountain biking, skiing. And I how think. old were you when you went to Australia? Uh, when I went to Australia, I was at 15, about 16. And, uh, and that's where I, as I started surfing there and then surfed okay. every day. And what was the surfing uh, scene like there at that time? It was, uh, so that would have been like 1995 or something in Western Australia. Um, It was great. I mean, great waves, but uh, there were like, rarely did I ever see another female in the water. well, I'm sure it's a lot different now, but <laughs> was yeah. that uh, like a daunting experience being the only woman in the water? I guess like I didn't really think about it too much, but if I ever saw one, I'd be like, oh my god, there's another girl. <laughs> I gotta talk to her. <laughs> <laughs> and um, were there any like famous female surfers that you looked up to? Um. Oh geez, I mean, I can't remember now, but uh, but I I'm sure there were that I had seen in in videos or like in the magazines and stuff, and I knew who, who you know the top women surfers were, but I can't remember any of that now. <laughs> not up with the surfing scene these no, days. <laughs> no, no worries, and um, I. I don't know, uh, something like a normal uh, question that I like to ask, like when people travel or they're in like different countries is, um, do you have like an interesting food experience or like what was your favorite food when you were in Australia? Oh, geez. Well, I was somewhat of a vegetarian when I moved there and then I was completely turned into a full-blown meat eater when I was there. It was just like barbecues, barbecue meat. I mean, and uh, 
that was uh, so I definitely had a change in, in diet when it was there. And not, there was not a good like salad scene. It was mostly <laughs> mostly meat. Oh, and kangaroo, and I ate kangaroo, and I thought it was so good. Really? It was actually. <laughs> my friend was cooking it for his dog, and then I'm like, tried it. It was, it was great. <laughs> And then, uh, so you spent like a year in Australia, is that correct? Yes. So I spent the year there and then I went back to New Mexico to finish high school. Um, I went to a college prep school. My mom taught there. So I ended up, um, having to apply to a bunch of like Ivy league schools and I ended up getting an academic scholarship at a couple of places. Um, what schools? Uh, Pepper, Pe- Pepperdine University and uh, Lewis and Clark in Oregon. And I ended up deciding that I wanted to go to Hilo, Hawaii instead, which is like one not rated the top uh, university or college. But I just I wanted to go to Hawaii. I wanted to go surf and I kind of wanted to have a cultural experience. And so I ended up not using my academic scholarships, which my mom was not very happy about. Um, and went to, I think it was like the worst rated four-year college or something. But but I had a great uh, experience there. Um, and like I, I learned to fish and um, I've just kind of changed my, my outlook on life the year there. And then uh, I decided to to come back home um, because my dad was, was a professor. And so I could use his tuition waiver and, and Flagstaff. And so I went there for a year and then used his tuition waiver to go back to Australia and um, back to Perth. And I went by myself and I spent a year at the, at a university there. Um, oh, and I forgot. I, I, I went to Santa Barbara and went to the community college there for a little bit too. I kind of bounced around a lot (laughs) (laughs) during my uh, early college years, but I did finish (laughs) and I ended up graduating in in Flagstaff. And what did you study when you went to college? I I studied geography. So I have a, a bachelor's in geography and then I studied art as well. So I have a degree in in art and i saw um it was in the u.s forest service article that you made i don't know if this was like when you were in college or is after but you had like this interesting art project involving uh flip-flops oh yeah so um i travel so i actually ended up going to graduate school at cal state long beach for art and um this was kind of like simultaneously I had started with forest service. I was on the hotshot crew. Um, and I had, I had traveled to, uh, I believe it was El Salvador and just surfing there and walking to the surf spot. I noticed there were like tons of flip flops all over on the beach. And I kind of, I just started looking at them like this, these are kind of cool. It's the way they've eroded and everything. And, um, I started collecting them and I collected like a thousand of them. Um, 
because I decided that I was going to make a canoe out of them. And I know like now a lot of people have made stuff out of flip-flops. This was in 2008 and I hadn't seen, you know, anybody make anything out of flip-flops. So I thought it was like that I had this great idea. Um, and I shipped all, my, my friend who I was with thought I was insane. He was like, what are you doing? You have like, now we have to carry piles of shoes around with us the rest of our travel here. And <laughs> I had 500 pounds of flip-flops. So, wow. Yes. I found a place where I could ship them all back to the United States. It was like a dollar a pound. It was a lot of money for me at the time. I really wanted the shoes though. So I sent them home and I had to go through customs in the U.S. have a couple meetings. They were like, why do you want the shoes? <laughs> trying to explain it. So I was going to make a canoe out of them for an art project. And <laughs> um, I never made the canoe. So I still have all uh. the shoes. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe someday. Yeah. And now, like, uh, the idea is kind of old. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I can imagine trying to explain yourself when you're going through customs of that person's probably looking at you going, what is going on here? <laughs> I'm an artist. Um. <laughs> and you mentioned that you got involved with, uh, like you were doing the hotshot stuff at the time, but how did you get involved originally with uh, like wildland firefighting? Um, well, so I, I, a couple things kind of sparked my interest. Um, growing up in Flagstaff, I knew about the Forest Service and I knew about the hotshots. One of my good friends uh, straight from high school had uh, ended up being on a hotshot crew. And so I would talk to him and he'd tell me stories. And I was like, oh, that sounds kind of exciting. Um, and then when I was in Santa Barbara at the community college, I took a class and there was a person in my class who said, hey, I do, I do it every summer. You know, it's paid for my school. And it's basically like, you know, you go camping for the summer, you go, you're hiking and you're outside and you're staying fit. And so when I finished um, undergrad, I thought, you know, maybe I'll go and spend a season doing forest service work. And I talked to, um, actually, this was like, pre-cell phone. I didn't have a phone. I went from fire station to fire station and asked for a job. And someone ended up hiring me. This was, uh, this ended up being in Ojai, um, on the Los Padres National Forest, uh, kind of in the Santa Barbara Ventura area. And, and I got hired for, for the season. So I thought like, yeah, this is, this is cool. I know I can hike and swing a tool or whatever. And, uh, and I did that season on the engine and then I got into graduate school. Um, and I, at the same time, I decided that uh, being on the engine was boring for me and I really wanted to be a hotshot. So I called my friend from high school and I said, hey, like, do you guys, uh, do you think I could, do you think I could do it? Like I've been, racing mountain bikes and hiking and he knew me and I said, I said well and do you do you have any women and he said like no no and no like <laughs> <laughs> I, and I was like what is, I kind of uh got a little upset and and then I called like every hotshot crew 
in the kind of Long Beach area. I mean, anything that was within a couple hours and um, I ended up getting hired. Uh, going back and to I the, told my when friend, you... hey, look, I got hired. <laughs> 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 That's awesome. But uh, going back to the, when you're like with the engine crew, is that just like doing like a, like a city firefighter's job? Like you would go to like house well, fires or is that different? No. So for the forest service, um, they're type three engines. They also have type six engines, which would be like kind of like a utility truck with uh, a small water tank and pump something for, you know, like, They'll have those in a lot of places um, where like really small um, areas of population and like, you know, Oregon and stuff like that. They have a, a bunch of the type sixes and then the type threes are common in more urban areas. Um, some of them do have like the um, BAs on us for like vehicle fires or something, but they don't go inside any structures. Uh, but they they have you know like 500 gallons of water and a crew of five people typically, and um, you know they'll be ordered up on on fires. This is the water; they're the water supply and the pumps for um, for service most for service fires. And then of course they bring in Type One engines, which are more for structure fires on urban interface. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that makes fires. sense. <laughs> so the combination of two two different types of engines and two different types of skill sets. And for those who don't know, uh, can you explain what a hotshot is? So a, a hotshot is um, a type one firefighting crew that's typically uh, around 20 people and they fight fire by um, typically by by putting hand line in. So they're creating a fuel break um, around the fire. And then they're also trained to do like burning operations, um, setting up like water pumps out in uh off the streams or lakes or you know whatever they're they're just like more a versatile group of hand crew um so they're not using water like an engine would to put out a fire they're building hand line that makes sense and i have some history um, and, here oh okay um, oh no you go ahead sorry to cut you off oh i was just i was gonna say um they are uh typically the uh you know natural resource so hotshots will basically spend six months during fire season uh traveling around from fire to fire to fire all over the west and you know they're they could be flying to fires they could go they could be driving um they're you know they're, they're in helicopters a lot of the time going out to in wilderness areas or Areas that are hard to access by road. And I have some, uh, I looked up some history about, uh, so when was, uh, so when you first joined the Hotshots, that was, what year was that? That was 
that was so my first year with Forest Service was 2003. And then I started on the Hot Shots in 2004, which is a El Criso Hot Shots. Okay, like li- like literally 100 years ago, uh, the U.S. Forest Service was established in 1905. And then the five years after that, there was like this massive fire. Called, it was nicknamed known or the nickname was the big blow up. I don't know if you're aware okay. of that. That was in nineteen ten. No. And uh it uh the fire took out three million acres across Idaho, Montana, and Washington in only two days. And wow. uh yeah. In nineteen thirty three, the federal government formed the Civilian Conservation Corps, which mm-hmm. put thousands of men to work building fire breaks and firefighters or fire lines. Mm-hmm. And uh I just think that's pretty fascinating that like almost like a hundred years ago that uh, there was a need for like a wildland firefighting crew. And I just, it's really interesting speaking with you now that, and you have like more of a modern perspective on it. Right. And so you were in the hot shots or what you were the Los Padres. Is that right? So yeah, I was on the on the Los Padres when I was on the engine, and then I went to the Cleveland National Forest um, on El Criso Hotshots, which I think arguably it was. I I was on two different crews, and they were both they were both the first hotshot crew, you know. So <laughs> I don't know which one was first. But uh, I think there's there's a handful of, of crews that kind of came out around the same time um, that, you know, in the like, I, I don't know what year exactly, but the 40s or 50s that are pretty old hotshot crews. And you were on one of the first uh, teams mm-hmm. that was established? Yes. Yeah. That's- and I know, you know, they had a the the what do you I don't know what it what it's called the logo I guess is a it's a wounded duck and so they had a plane that was like a military plane and they just loaded everybody up in the plane and flew to these fires and the plane was called the wounded duck so that's pretty cool that's one little piece of history that <laughs> and I. I also looked up. Uh, I saw in that Forest Service art article the uh, the El Carrizo hotshots. Yeah, mm-hmm. there was like a big fire called the Loop Fire in 1966. Yes. Do you know yes. about that at all? Yes. Um, the superintendent of the crew actually, I think it was my first or second year on El Carrizo. He came and spoke to us, um, and. It was pretty emotional for him. I just remember that because he was, I mean, he was responsible. I don't want to say, I don't want to, I don't want to say that, but I mean, it was his crew and he survived and the majority of the crew ended up getting burned over. Um, So he told us the story from his perspective, um, which was pretty powerful and amazing to hear straight from him. And then years later, I ended up going on a staff ride which is uh, basically like an opportunity to learn about an event that happened um, at that particular location. And sometimes it will have, sometimes people will speak about it that weren't 
involved, especially if it happened a long time ago, but um, like the staff ride that I went on, but I got to hear the story from him and then go on the staff ride years later at, at the location and, and look at everything it was a pretty powerful you know, experience. And I know, you know, that was not the only time that crew had, had a burnover, but with like so many fatalities, I think there was like a 13 on the loop fire. And can you explain like what happened, like what, what a burnover is? So they were putting hand line in around the fire. Um, and there was, uh, I believe it would, they were putting handline in downhill, which is always um, dangerous because the fire moves uphill and the fire was below them. And, um, and I think they, they um, had some really, they had miscommunication or no, no communication. They didn't have very many radios back then. And I think the wind switched and it spotted below and, and basically fire overran the, the crew. Um, and I don't know, I can't be saying exactly what happened to loop fire, but that's how I am remembering it. And did they have fire shelters then? Um, you know, I don't think they did have fire shelters then and also from that it sounded like everything happened so fast that they probably wouldn't have had time to, to deploy your shelters or have a good location for it either and um can you kind of talk about your experience uh when you're on that hotshot uh crew how many seasons you did and um just memorable experiences yeah, so I when I was on El Cristo, I, I did three seasons on that crew, and um, I had, I mean, a ton of memorable experiences. It was, I mean, it was really fun and also really hard, really physically challenging. Um, I was 24 when I got on the crew and I think that first season we had 1300 hours of overtime, which is a lot. We were gone. They have, it's a little different now, but we would do 14 days on a fire plus travel. And then we have two R and R days. So like rest recovery days and that we got paid for. And then we were available to go out again. And we basically, we were gone on a fire back for two days, gone on a fire, back for two days. And it was like that the entire fire season. And it was a seasonal, so there was, uh, there was like a cutoff. You can only work for six months, I believe, or six and a half months, a certain amount of time. And we kind of like maximized that whole season. We were gone. I remember, you know, telling my parents, like, this, this is so really hard. <laughs> I was like really tired at the end of the season thinking like, I don't know if I want to do this again. And then I'm like, yeah, okay. Next year I'll go back. <laughs> and then the next season was busy. I'm like, ah, oh, gosh, I don't know if I want to do this again. It's hard. And I kept going back, kept going back. <laughs> um, my, I guess it was so 2006, 
was a pretty memorable season for me um, because I, I was on Esperanza fire, which was a, a fatality fire. So there's an engine that was burned over and five people died. And I was on that fire. And I remember that, you know, being pretty, um, I mean, it was really disturbing and um, scary for me. And then uh, I was also on that season, I was on a helicopter and uh, there were five of us on it and the hydraulics went out and we had to do like an emergency landing. It was fishtailing and we didn't have any communication. And, um, and that was like, that was scary. <laughs> and then I was on another fire where uh, some old dynamite ended up going off when we were burning off of a, a trail and all these trees started falling and like, it was just like one thing after another. And I just, I just kept dodging everything. And at the end of that season, um, I ended up taking two years off. I think just because I had, I felt like that we had so many, so many close calls. Did you felt then, like, did you feel like you had like maybe decompress from your experiences? Yeah. And, and, and I'm like, I had told my mom about these things. My mom's like, you know, don't go back, just finish your school. Um, and, and so I decided, you know, I needed, I, I needed to have a break and I'm, that was so 2007, 2008. I just traveled, finished graduate school. And then when I finished grad school, I went back to the hot shots instead of getting a job having to do with, what I, with my education. <laughs> they pulled you back in. Yeah. And um, that's I ended up going to a different crew at that point. And what was this crew called? So the next, the next row, which was called, it was uh, Del Rosa Hotshots. And so I started with them 2009 and um, I was with them until I got hired with the city municipal fire. So I was, I was, uh, oh <laughs> yeah, 2009, 10, 11, 12, and then 2013, I ended up going to Cal Fire for just a season, and then I went back to the Hot Shots. I was, you know, all, all over the place again. <laughs> Worked on helicopter for a season. And as like a, before we dive into the helicopter one, um, as like a Hot Shot, what kind of gear do you, uh, like, that's on your person that you bring to a fire and all that? So, um, you have like your leather boots. Um, that's probably the first thing I think of because that's like your feet are so important because you're hiking around all the time. Um, and then kind of like a Nomex, like a somewhat fire resistant uh, pants and shirt, long sleeve, and just, you know, hard hat, leather gloves. And then your pack carries everything that you need um, for an extended shift. So say you're on fire for, you know, a day and a half or 30 hours or something, which could be like an initial attack shift. Uh, you have, you have a 
typically like six to eight quarts of water and food for that whole time period. Um, usually an MRE, um, which is like, you know, I'm sure, you know, you know what MRE is. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, eating lots of those. And, uh, and then you have just, you know, maybe some extra clothes, um, just little things that you need. Uh, but you pack also fuel for the saw. So everybody chips in and carries fuel for the chainsaw and oil. Um, and then you have your fire shelter and your pack. So typically your pack's going to weigh around 40 pounds. And then you are either using a tool or a chainsaw. So if you have a saw, you know, that's, that's another 25 pounds and tools, like 10 pounds or something. So you, you end up like carrying quite a bit of stuff. Yeah. And, um, how many chainsaws are on like a typical crew and then does everybody else, what, what type of, uh, tools do they use? So typically, I mean, it kind of depends on um, what type of vegetation type it is in the fire. But um, on a fire, a crew is going to use three to to five saws would be heavy. Three saws would be kind of light. And then, you know, four saws, that would be normal for a hotshot crew. So in each, each saw is a saw team. So... There's, there's a swamper and a sawyer. Um, so those are going to be like, they're going first to cut open the bit, the, the brush or whatever it is. Um, so there's, there would be like eight people. The first eight people of the crew would be uh, the saw teams. And then after that, you know, the, the rest of the people, there's, there's me, a couple captains and a couple of squad bosses that are, um, maybe going out and scouting and seeing what to do. And, um, and uh, usually a squad boss with the saws and, and a squad boss with the, the tools. And then, so after the chainsaws, you have like a grubbing tools, like a Pulaski. So it's like a um, something to get like big roots out and stuff after the saws cut down a bush or whatever, the, the Pulaskis and grubbing tools come in, knock that out. And then after that, you have like a um, a rogue or a, a McLeod. They're basically like sc- scraping tools. And then at the very end, sometimes there there's like, well, someone will have a little rake. They call it a monkey paw. It's a little rake. And, you know, that's, that's a hard job to have, to be that person. But somebody's got to do it. It's very important. But usually it's not like, like the first saw is kind of, you know, that that's like the hero and then, and then there's the rake. And so <laughs> they're equally important, but I don't think they, they feel the same, you know, when you're the first saw or you're the rake. <laughs> that's interesting. Rake's kind of like at the bottom of the totem pole, but, <laughs> but necessary, right? But very necessary. And, and oftentimes somebody who has a little bit more experience too, because they're the quality control in the back, they have a radio, they're watching the back door, you know, they're making sure that um, the fire hasn't spotted behind the crew. And so that person is like really important. Sometimes, 
they have a tool and a rake. Sometimes I've seen uh, on one of my crews, it was just a rake. And when you are assigned a tool, you usually have it the whole season. So you like become very familiar with that tool. And <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. It's a funny thing, but it's like, when that's your world, it's like the whole season of, of where you are in the line order, what tool you have and, and who's next to you in the line. <laughs> Cause if it's somebody you don't get along with, that is not good. You have to figure, you, you got to figure it out. <laughs> And what did you carry when you were on these crews? I have had every single tool. Um, I started out, uh, I, I had like uh, a scraping tool my first season. And then I bumped up to the, the Pulaski. And then I was the rake because the quality control and talking on the radio. And then um, I was on a saw. So I, I was on a saw team uh, for a couple seasons when I was on Del Rosa Hot Shots. And that was like, I mean, it took me some years to, to get there because um, I guess of uh, basically like proving myself with my being able to hike the saw, you know, and being able to have that endurance and, and strength to be able to run the saw. In, uh, and I remember it was like a big deal when I got put on a saw because uh, it was like, you know, there aren't a lot of women on hot shot crews in general. And then there are not a lot on the saw. And so I remember my captain had a talk with me and my saw partner and the crew saying, hey, you know, like, we're going to have a, a, a female on a saw. So Betty, like... <laughs> I don't know. No, that makes sense. I, I mean, I look back on these things and it seems it seems kind of funny, but that was, that's a world. Yeah. And uh, I just wanted to ask, um, or like how many miles, say if you're like just like a, like a general fire, how many like miles would you be hiking while you're working as a hotshot, do you think? So, you know, it really depends on the vegetation and the terrain. Um, sometimes I would say the most ground that we would cover would be on a desert fire. So typically in the beginning of fire season, um, wind driven kind of grass, deserty fires that might be out in Arizona and Utah and Nevada, we could be on a fire that's, you know, like 10,000 acres and <laughs> there's like one crew on it or a couple crews and we're, we're, uh, it's kind of called cold trailing. So we're basically walking the edge of the fire, finding the edge of it. A lot of it's already gone out because the wind died down and, and we're just getting um, boots on the ground to basically like check the whole entire fire to make sure that it's out. And that is a, like a lot of hiking in usually really hot conditions um but not like a ton of work like you know running the saws and swinging a tool and stuff but i mean th those days could we could be covering i mean <laughs> 10 miles or something depending on you know where we're camping and stuff and then you know on a, a fire that say like i would say you know 
a fuel type like Northern California or areas where there's heavy brush and it's, it's really um, difficult terrain and really thick vegetation, we might, you know, only be covering a, a couple miles in a day. And then we just kind of keep moving along wherever we are. And then sometimes we go to fires where it's just, it's called mop up. So it's basically like the edge of the fire is already has a line around it and we're going to farther interior to make sure everything's out. Um, and then sometimes there could be like a hike in and out that is, you know, over a few miles and it's steep, you know, up to a ridge or something. And then you work all day and then you hike out. So it varies, but typically there's just, there's not a lot of rest involved in, in the work day. Yeah. It sounds like it's a, like this major suck factor there because it just seems like it's so hard, <laughs> but it, I bet you it's, it probably pays off, right? It's probably like anytime you do something really tough, physically challenging or mentally challenging afterwards, you just kind of feel like, like during it, oh, I yeah. imagine you're like, this sucks, but afterwards you're like, that was kind of awesome. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I always felt so fit and so strong and like i love that feeling and then when you had the chainsaw do you remember i'm sure you have like is there like a massive tree or do you remember like the biggest thing that you had to cut down or anything like that i've seen some crazy videos of it and i just wanted to ask that question <laughs> um i mean i cut i cut some trees i cut some bigger trees and um but being from a crew in Southern California, also like our thing was not not cutting trees; it's more like cutting brush, true, true. which is which is tiring <laughs> because it goes on forever. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I cut some trees, but I wasn't like have any crazy tree cutting stories. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> um, in it, uh. What makes like a good hut shot in your opinion? Um, well, someone who of course gets along with everybody, gets along with people. Like that's very important because you're stuck with, with this group of people or, I mean, you get, you're doing everything with them, sleeping next to them outside, you know, eating absolutely everything. Um, so that's, that's something, you know, even over like physical fitness, I think is just the ability to, to get along with people. Um, and we're, we're definitely tested with, with emotions and stuff. You're going to see like <laughs> people get in bad moods, you know, and, um, we see the worst of each other. We see the best of each other. So, um, I think that's that's the most important thing and then and then also probably <laughs> like a high pain tolerance <laughs> getting along with people and having a high pain tolerance and never complaining about food <laughs> <laughs> just being grateful to eat <laughs> that's awesome and and uh enjoying the outdoors if you don't like to to sleep in the dirt and you don't like to hike uh that then you know it would be pretty hard to be a hot shot 
No, it's great. And uh, you also and mentioned- someone that likes a physical challenge too, because it is, it really is physically challenging and demanding. And, you know, a lot of times, a lot of times it, it hurts, you know? And you also mentioned that you went on to it like a hell attack crew. Can you explain what that type of uh, job is and the purpose for those units? Yeah. So um, I, I worked on a, a helicopter out of Lake Arrowhead for just one season as like a, a detail. And um, so kind of like my hot truck crew blow me out for the season so I could go get another experience and then I'd go back to the hot shots and like that's called a detail um that I would say is a totally you know totally different than being on, on a hot shot crew you're with a, a little bit of smaller group of people um it's not so physically demanding I would say um but it could be more um more mentally challenging uh, on a helicopter and a lot of times you know you could be um being a, a be a single resource so there's a lot of like radio stuff at the at helibases somebody might be just working with radios um working with talking you know talking to uh different air resources and stuff there's like air attack involved in that world so that's that's basically a plane that's up on a fire monitoring all the air resources and um but the the purpose of, of the, the hell attack crew is basically to be like an initial attack resource so right when a fire starts they can fly there quickly um create a hell spot land um and put fire out quickly so it's similar in that respect to the smoke jumping smoke jumpers to be just a really quick initial attack resource and totally different than in the hot shots which a hot shot hot shot crew is really like about hard work and a lot of endurance and you mentioned the smoke jumpers. I am. I uh, know that you also are a smoke jumper. So can you kind of talk about your like how that came to be? Why you're interested in becoming a smoke jumper? And so, um, I so actually have a pretty unique story because I um, got hired with by with San Diego City. So I went to a municipal fire department, um, and while I was, while I had made the decision to kind of pursue that, that avenue of fire, I had also wanted to be a smoke jumper like for years. And so I had, um, spoken to Reading smoke jumpers and wanted to do a detail, uh, as that. And then I got hired, I got hired with the city and I decided, okay, I'm going to do this instead because it's like the responsible thing to do. It's a, it's like, it's a better job with better benefits and a better schedule. And so I took the job with San Diego city when I finished my Academy and I finished probation. So a year and a half um, after I was hired, I asked our chief at the time, who was chief uh, Brian Finnessy, if it would be okay if, I took a leave of absence to go jump because I still wanted to do that. It was just a, a goal that I had and dream that I had. And 
he said yes. He said yes. That would be because he used to be a hotshot superintendent. Um, and so he supported that, uh, like as a training leave of absence. And then I went to Reading and I applied and I said, Hey, I know like I'm a city firefighter now, but I really want, I really want to do this. I really want to, um, be smoked over, experience it and do a season. And my, my plan was that I would do that, uh, that I could go possibly every summer, take annual leave and do trades with my city job and go jump every summer because I, it was really hard for me to go to the city and just give up, um, really like my passion for wildland fire and my love of, of being outdoors. So it ended up working out. Reading hired me, um, chief Finnessy let me go. And, uh, with the idea that I was coming back. And so I, I went to Reading and, and I was a smoke jumper. That was, I was just for, for one season. Um, I did like 25 jumps and I jumped a couple of fires and, uh, ended up getting hurt <laughs> oh, at wow. the very end of the season. So probably after you read uh, about that article <laughs> with the forest service, I, I ended up getting hurt, uh, I, my femur kind of jammed into my, my pelvis and I had like, ended up being a major injury, which, um, I had multiple surgeries and then I was on the the, the city, you know, I went back to the city injured. (laughs) (laughs) I was on light duty for a year and a half and I worked in recruitment and then now I'm all, I'm all healed up. Well, that's we'll good. <laughs> did uh, was that like a? Did you get injured by like a bad landing? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it was a practice jump too, so oh. there was nothing, nothing exciting about that that story. <laughs> <laughs> I just it didn't even look like it was bad. It was like oh, just kind of awkward landing, and it totally destroyed my hip. <laughs> <laughs> And what year was that season? That was uh, 2018. Okay. So 2018. And I, I'm i not positive, but I think, you know, I I rookied, uh, I was 38 and I turned 39 during that rookie season, which, like, I mean, that was pretty old. Pretty old to do that. I think I might still be... I, pretty, pretty close. I know someone else might have been like a year younger than me, but I might have been the oldest female to rookie. Wow. But I, mean, I felt like, you know, at the time I felt like I was in good shape and I, and I trained, um, but it was, it was hard. I mean, I was, I rookied with seven guys that were like in their mid twenties and, you know, running like five minute miles and, it was it was tough to keep up with them well, <laughs> when I was you, used to. <laughs> what would you do for training? Um, we would run fast and then do like tons of push-ups, pull-ups, dips, and sit-ups. Different than Hotshot Crew. In Hotshot Crew, you're going out and you're hiking with weight. You're hiking every day, and you're like putting in line, hand line, using running the saws and stuff. 
long and and sometimes running depending on which crew but on on uh, the smoke jumpers is really like fast running and then just a lot of like calisthenics and push-ups pull-ups because you're at you're you know you're at an airport and instead of like on a mountain and to become a smoke jumper did you have to go to like some sort of uh smoke jumping selection course or anything like that um well i i just applied and um talked to the jump base and i think they had remembered me um and i worked with uh one of their i kind of gave them like my general times for like my mile or mile and a half run like how many push-ups i could do how many pull-ups i do i could do so that they would have an idea if i could pass their they're like they have a day one test which is like and it's a mile and a half run push-ups pull-ups sit-ups and then uh, and then you have to do pack tests so you have a 110 pound pack and you have to like walk three miles you know on on like the tarmac of the airport with this really heavy pack yeah uh, in a certain amount of time and and that's because when you are jumping a fire you've got your you know your your jumpsuit and your parachute and then you have all of the gear that's the paracargo that the plane um unloads so that you can fight fire so you've got like the saws the tools the food um sleeping bags everything like that and when you leave the fire you have to pack all of this stuff up and walk out with it and you know this pack can weigh 120 pounds and you've got to be able to get out with all that stuff um and find a trail and then find a road and somebody will come pick you up (laughs) that sounds like very tough (laughs) yeah and 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 then you're also you have the the you know the when you're the pack out or hiking out um you know there's not there's not always a trail nearby so some of it you're just like bushwhacking and and going up and down some stuff and then you have to you know, there's like some navigation skills involved in that as well, um, which are a lot easier now with the cell phone. But <laughs> uh, can you walk through like one of the, your um, one of the fires that you jumped into, just like kind of like maybe from start to finish, like from the airplane jumping in and then eventually packing out? Yeah. So um, I'll just. I'll just talk about like my, my first fire. Um, I was pretty fortunate to get to jump in the Sierras and uh, I was in the John Muir wilderness area. That's where there was a, a, a small um, fire there. And there were like, I think, you know, we have a, a plane load. There's different types of aircraft. So, um, there's like planes that carry, you know, they'll carry over 15 people and then some, you know, carry like eight, eight jumpers. But basically the plane, you know, gets report of typically like a lightning storm and lightning fires. And then we'll just go flying area and we see the smoke um, determine if 
you know, how many people to let out um, with what equipment and where the, where the jump spot, where the landing spot is going to be. So the plane will fly over that smoke a few times and then there's a spotter and they decide, you know, okay, this is where you're going to go. And then they let out some streamers, which basically show like the, the wind direction and the wind speed. So you can visually see, you know, where you're probably going to end up going. And then, and then the, the spotter will say, Hey, this is, this is your jump spot. Does everybody, do you see the jump spot? Do you know where you're going? <laughs> and they make that determination. It, it all happens like fairly quickly. Um, so like on my first fire, I was the first person out of the plane. And um, I remember that, you know, being pretty exciting, but also a little nerve wracking because I wanted to make sure that like I hit the jump spot and that when I landed, I was able to communicate the right way and I'm, everything turned out fine with that. And then, you know, and then, and then you have to figure out, okay, when you're on the ground, you know, you can't see, I couldn't see the fire at that point. So we had to, um, you know, to like kind of have an idea where the fire is, figure out where it is, try to find it. And then also the, the paracargo, all that. So you can see where the plane is, is dropping that stuff because they're going to drop you in the jump spot a little bit away from the fire. And then they drop like all the tools and the gear that you need closer to the fire so that you don't have to like carry everything to the fire. And, um, and then it's also a good visual of like where you're going to end up hiking. And, and so like one of the cargo boxes has the saw. If you're new, you gotta like run for the saw because <laughs> that's your job as a rookie, get the saw, do the hardest job. And and it's like me and there was another rookie who were trying to figure out, you know, who can get to the saw first. And he got it on that one. <laughs> Some of it's just luck. Like which, which one you're going to come across first, which box, like, <laughs> and then I think we, we stayed on that fire. We put, put line around it and monitored it. And, um, you know, we were, I think we did like six or seven days on that fire. And then there were some trails. So we, we just look, look at a map and find found some trails out and hiked out and someone picked us up. And the other fire jump that was was similar to that as well it was in the Sierras and in the Ansel Adams wilderness. And so both of those fires were like above 9,000 feet and um, totally pristine areas. And it was pretty cool. Yeah, that is pretty cool. And were you ever, do you have any experiences getting like resupplied with, from like, with like food or, uh, just various stuff like that? Um, we didn't need to be on those fires. So we had everything that we needed. Um, you know, which, uh, obviously it's like packaged food. Um, jumpers have MREs, but they also pack their own cargo and so like they pack other things like you know spam <laughs> <laughs> they like spam and uh you know like just other packaged foods that are probably a little bit fresher than any MREs 
Um, but the, that's, that's like the, um, the beauty of the resource of, of the smoke jumper is that they're self-sufficient. So they're, they're packing their own stuff. Um, they're determining what they need and they don't need, they're not asking for any additional resources on a hotshot crew. It's different because they, they're going out, you know, if they're spiked out, like flying out to a place or driving out to a place, they, you know, at some point are going to run out of um, food and water. And it would be, it's normal for a hotshot crew to request, say, like a sling load from a helicopter of food and water. But, uh, but smoke jumpers typically don't do that. They, they are all set up and self-sufficient and, um, they typically don't have to ask for other resources, but if they did end up needing like more food or something they'd ask and the, and the plane from the jump base would come bring it to them. That makes sense. And the reason why I ask is I think it's either the smoke jumper association or the smoky generation or something like that. I saw an interview with like this old school, like really old school guy. I think he was like in the fifties mm -hmm. and he said that they used to get like steaks and then and he cooked a steak on his shovel. Oh yeah. And then, and then like I know that might have been like the wild wild west back then, but I just thought it was really cool, and I was wondering if you had something similar. But it sounds like not really because you have well, like the MREs and stuff. There is, uh, you know, sometimes like before, uh, if you know you're gonna jump a fire at the jump base, people keep like some meat and stuff in the freezer, and then you just put it in your pocket real quick and and then you have it like for that first night you can cook it over a fire so i think that might still happen <laughs> well that's i'm glad to hear that <laughs> um did you have any like animal encounters as a smoke jumper or you just too remote maybe or um, i don't know not a smoke jumper but definitely as a hot shot i mean i've remember a fire we were on on the rogue river in oregon and we actually took these jet boats up the river to the fire because there were no roads um and there really wasn't a place to it was just the easiest way to get us there instead of you know us taking a helicopter we were um boated like pretty far upstream into this fire and we camped on one side of the river and then every day the boat would pick us up and bring us to the other side so that we had a safe place where we were sleeping. And um, there were tons of bears, like they were all over the place and, you know, they just left us alone. But I remember like, you know, walking around at night and I typically on the hot sauce, I never, I never used a tent. I, I never liked sleeping in a tent unless there were bad mosquitoes or it was stormy or something. Um, I always just slept outside and, you know, so like I see, see some eyes in, in the woods and remember that, but <laughs> that's spooky. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. I don't think a bear, like a black bear likes to, you know, be around like 20 smoke jumpers or hot shots. I mean, <laughs> right. That's interesting. Um, is there anything I haven't asked you about, like smoke jumping, that you want to uh, discuss? That comes uh, to mind, maybe? That's not that I can think of. Not that I can think of. I mean, really, I 
only did it for a season. So my, most of my experience was really as a hotshot, you know, and that's, that's like what I feel like I know. I know the best. I know that life the best. Um, I wish I had been a smoke jumper for longer because, um, because you have the, you know, because a smoke jumper has more independence than a hotshot. You know, it's not like you're like, uh, let's say uh, being a hotshot cruise is like a very kind of militant, um, just the organization of it where you're assigned a certain tool and you're in a certain order and you don't really have a lot of independence, but on, as a smoke jumper, you know, you could end up being at different bases and, um, being a single resource, sometimes smoke jumpers like end up going to larger campaign fires. They might be, uh, have a different role as like a, a division or a fobs, like, you know, just, they have, they're doing their own thing. And so I think like, I would have really enjoyed doing that as I, as I said, as I got older, it would have probably would have been more fitting for me. I, and a lot of smoke jumpers, they will, continue to do that till till they're very you know till what i guess forced retirement at 57 with the force service so wow. there, there are people that they do it the entire time i mean it's not just something like for young people people make a career out of it and you know if they don't get hurt they stay fit yeah that's amazing and like you said, a good way to stay fit, but I can't even imagine doing that. Like that's such a, especially when you went, like you did it when you're in your, uh, at 38 years old. Right. I can't even imagine doing it at like 57. I mean, that's such a yeah. tough job. So yeah, kudos to you. I mean, <laughs> it is. And, and so, and the parachute, I mean, every landing, every landing is kind of like a hard landing with the, the round parachutes, but so they just changed and all, um jump bases are using the ram air which is the larger um like rectangular parachute um that's like closer to what you'll see like recreational recreational parachutes and they have a softer landing so i could see that being more sustainable but yeah i can't imagine i mean i got hurt a lot of people get hurt too <laughs> yeah. a lot of people get hers like when I hurt my hip it's like ah whatever you know no big deal it's like it's like somebody breaks their femur their hip every year <laughs> and I like a, every jump base. <laughs> a, a question I forgot to ask was like um what's like the altitude that you jump at um so like 1500 feet with the rounds with the parachute that I was jumping. So it was like 1500 feet. And then with the other, uh, the squares is more like a 3000 feet. So really, um, as soon as you exit the airplane, you've got like 60 seconds, depending on the wind, you know, it could be less than that. It could be a little bit more, but I would say like 50 to 70 seconds. And you have to figure out, like you have to get oriented because you could be twisted up. So you've got to get oriented. And then you've got to like figure out the wind and figure out a strategy to get to your jump spot. And you also have a jump partner. So you have to be conscious of where they are, what they're doing. 
and um, it goes really quick. It's not like there's time you're up there going, oh, wow, so cool. It's so pretty. <laughs> At least I didn't. Every time I was there, I'm like, okay, I got to figure out what's going on up here. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't even think of that. And how tall are these trees on average, do you think? I mean, it just depends on it depends like on where, where you are. Yeah. So, you know, they could be like our rappel line was 150 feet. That's like what we had in our pockets, what we were prepared for, a 150-foot tree. But I remember when we were out of Porterville, we were staged out of Porterville, and we were flying over the sequoias every day. And they were like, you know, you might want to carry another 150 feet of pea line in your pocket in case you got to put the two together, but just don't land in one of those trees because <laughs> it's a long way down. <laughs> right. And then after, uh, after smoke jumping, uh, you went back to your, the San Diego, uh, firehouse, right? You're still there yes. today. Yes. Yeah. So I went back, um, I was on light duty and I worked in recruitment for a year and a half, two years, uh, which, which was a totally different experience for me. And I, at that time, I didn't know, um, how I was going to recover. I, I was on bed rest, um, for like three months, my leg in a machine. And I just didn't know what my future was going to be. Um, but I worked I work really hard at my recovery and I have a, a physical therapist who I still work with, who does all my like programming for me. And, um, uh, it's, I believe that just sticking to that really helped me. I mean, I was doing three to four hours of physical therapy and strength, strength training as, as soon as I was able to for years. And wow. now, um, I did run ultra marathons before that. And I'm a really love running and, um, I didn't know if I was going to be able to do that again. And I just ran like my first hundred miler this year, which is pretty like emotional thing for me. Um, after, 
you know, <laughs> not knowing if I was going to walk, <laughs> how I was going to be walking. Like, <laughs> yeah, wow, that's amazing. So I had a good surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you did mention the ultra marathon. Can you kind of talk about that race a little bit? The specific uh, so one you did? I just did. I've done a bunch of them, but most recently um, out of Prescott, Arizona, I just did the man against horse race. And this is an old race. I think this is a, the 38th annual uh, man against horse. And apparently it started in the bar um, at Whiskey Row. And I don't know if you're familiar with Prescott, but there's no. kind of like a town square and... Um, there's like the Whiskey Row, Wild West bars, saloons and stuff. Okay. And uh, many years ago, there was a guy who was like a, a, some kind of a council member or something, city person who had just ran a marathon or was talking about a marathon. And there's another guy who's a cowboy and they're drinking in the bar and the marathon the guy is talking about running. The other guy is like, my horse could beat you. And... Um, they decided to have a competition of a foot race with the runner versus the horse and the rider. And, and so it's, it's 50 miles with like, I mean, amazing horses, absolutely incredibly trained fit horses and riders starting out at the start line with runners and it's a race you know, to see if the human or the horse wins and the human has won sometimes and really? the horse, the, <laughs> the horse uh, I think normally wins. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you remember who came in first in your, uh, the race that you did? Was it a horse or was it a human? Um, I believe my race was, was a horse. And, and the thing is it's not completely straightforward because the horses have vet stops that they are mandatory. So they have like three vet stops that are an hour long each. And so when they finish, they get three hours subtracted off, off of their finish time. Okay. Um, so even if you finished with a horse, you would feel like you tied or, you know, whatever, but actually the horse beat you by like three hours. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, the runners have won it. But it's just a kind of a, a different kind of race. Pretty fun to be with horses. Yeah, it sounds awesome. I never even heard of something like that before. But um, and you also did other like was the what was the longest race like mileage wise that you've done? Um, I just a uh, a hundred mile hundred mile race. So I did uh one this last January. Um, and where was yeah, that? Was like, that? That was outside of Phoenix. Okay. And, um, so it took me 26 and a half hours and I was That's running impressive. most of the time. <laughs> I, I walked a little, little bit at the end. Um, you know, I didn't do great, but I still, I think I was like fifth place female, which I was pretty happy. Um, I wanted a time under 24 hours because that's like a good time in the, the hundred mile running world. Maybe next but time, right? I'm, I'm trying again. It's next yeah. year. 
uh in how do you like i'm just curious like how do you prepare for something like that like what would your do you have i imagine you have like certain goals and training goals that you have like how many miles like do you run it before you do like a race like this and kind of talk about that um well running running is like part of my lifestyle so i just run more like 70 to 100 miles a week um i don't i am not the kind of person that, like i don't stick to any kind of like actual schedule or or program with my running um i just have like a couple days a week that i try to go out and like run all day um if it's out on trails i'll i'll go run trails all day um and then like the other days or when I'm at work, I'll, I'll just run, you know, like 10 miles or something. But then on my long, my long runs, it will be, you know, 20 to 30 or 40 miles. Wow. And, and, and I try to get some runs in that are like where there's some altitude gain, some elevation gain on, on trails that are, you know, going uphill. And what's like the, what's your pace? for like a long distance like if you're doing like a hundred mile race what would your pace be for a mile um slow <laughs> slow yeah. you know like 10 or 11 to 13 minute miles yeah and i just try to kind of keep running and and not spend too much time at the aid stations but i mean if you keep running if you're running and you keep running, it's going to be a good finish. And I mean, there's some people, there's some elite people out there that are running very fast the whole time. They're running, you know, like a seven minute mile for a hundred miles. But, you know, that's not, that's, that's not what most people are doing. Yeah. It doesn't seem sustainable. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you're at like, when there's like these aid stations, what are they like, what do you get when you go there? Like, I know you like probably run to it, but what do they like supply you? They have like some kind of electrolyte drink. Um, and then they usually have soda, like ginger ale, um, Coke. And then they have uh, just like boiled potatoes that you can put in salt, pickles, like, some candy, M&M's, gummy candy, like, uh, usually, usually none of it really sounds that great because it's just hard to eat once you've been running for a long time. Um, but on the hundreds, you know, they'll usually have like peanut butter jelly sandwiches and they'll like make some quesadillas or some kind of like actual food towards the, the second part of the race. And how long would you pause at like one of these aid stations for? Just like less than five minutes. Yeah. I'm like, this is so fascinating to me. <laughs> <laughs> just like, just like grab some, grab some food and try to keep moving. Like I think the, the key is keep moving. And how many of these races would you do a year? Um, or like long distance or maybe not like just a hundred like, mile but probably like three three races a year because they're 
they're not cheap. And then there's always like traveling to the race and the camping there and stuff. So it's like kind of an event, but I like to do, you know, about three a year. Are these like big, like sponsored events or are they kind of like low key? They're pretty low key. There's a couple that are big ones, but I mean, for the most part, there's not really like money involved in it. It's like you finish, you get a belt buckle and a t-shirt and, and you get the experience. <laughs> oh, that's cool. You just pay for pain. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, on the hot sauce, you get paid to be in pain at least, but I probably miss that so much that I just voluntarily go out now and <laughs> pay to be in pain. <laughs> and uh, do you still surf? I do. Yeah. So actually I, um, I live in Mexico okay. and um, I surf kind of down here by my house and, and but I spearfish more. That's like my other, my other big hobby. Um, and I guess something I left out about my, my life story. Um, I ended up working on fishing boats and dive boats and I got my captain's license and along the line I ended up um living on a sailboat so I lived on a sailboat for on and off for like 13 years wow. while I was on the hot shots and going to school and stuff um that's awesome so that was so like while I did that and I worked on on um these charter fishing boats and dive boats and that's kind of how I got into the spearfishing what's your and, favorite uh thing to spearfish um i i mean like the biggest fish i can get but that's always exciting i mean i just like i just like uh it, for me it's also a meditative thing i really enjoy like being in the water focusing on my breathing um you know because it's it's about your breath hold and then also just like really enjoying the moment and everything I see underwater. And now, you know, if I get, if I get a fish and I bring home some food, great. If, if I don't, then I still like absolutely love just being in the water. Um, but like I, I spearfish in the closer to shore, like where, um, the kelp is, there's like species, um, like sheephead and calico bass that don't really, they're non-migratory species. And I really enjoy, and they're smaller. I really enjoy like diving for those just because it's, it's fun. It's shallower and I can kind of like look into the details, all the rocks and just, just to see the beauty. And then, uh, and then sometimes I've, I'm spearfishing out like in the open ocean, which is a whole different thing. You know, there's no bottom, uh, there's no bottom. <laughs> And there's more the sharks and you know other kind of elements and um uh, i really enjoy that as well but and, if i'm like by myself i definitely feel safe just just like shore diving near the shore right you said it was like mm -hmm. therapeutic would uh is it more because you're sort of in the moment like you said or can you kind of talk about 
I think it's really therapeutic because because um, you're kind of like in a different world. So you're you're sort of unlike surfing. You're not like surfing. You're on the surface of the water. When you're free diving, you're like in the water, and so you're like in a whole other world. You're seeing underwater you're hearing underwater and you're like focusing on your breathing and for me it's very meditative and and like for me when I'm spearfishing you're hunting so like you're this is very quiet it's a very like quiet solitary thing um where you're like your mind is focused on on a, um, just seeing and hearing and those elements and um and so for me like it's very therapeutic and like the distance running is too because after a certain point you know like sometimes I would say for me sometimes it's like 10 miles or sometimes it's 15 or sometimes it's 20 miles and after I run that distance um there's like you know, your, your thought process is becomes, um, I, I don't know what happens to your brain, but it's something that's therapeutic. <laughs> right. No, I, I think it's very difficult to explain, but if you've experienced it before, then you know what you're talking about. And I know what you're talking about. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. I would say like for, for me and some of the stresses that I have, uh, at work, but I find that like both of those activities are, are very, uh, therapeutic for me. That's awesome. And, uh, I just have a few more questions. Um, we're just about like, what are you doing with, uh, San Diego fire? Like what's, what's your rank, what's your job like that you're doing now? Can you kind of talk about that? Yeah. Um, so I, I'm a firefighter and I have, not promoted. I plan to, um, my injury kind of set me back a little bit. Um, I've had to be kind of cautious and, um, I was working at a fire station, San Diego city. So we have like over 50 fire stations. We're pretty large. I think the eighth largest municipal department in the country. So, you know, there's a lot of, lot of different stations and a lot of different areas and um kind of a lot of different specialties and opportunities and i it's just like a great place to be great people um i have been at a fire station at the border and in living in mexico which is is like unique and and really cool that i could live in another country yeah. and <laughs> and still work at a fire station in the United States. And um, now I just moved to a different station in, in La Jolla um, just for a change. I'm working at uh, a slower station. And I think that's just as a result of, of like what I've been through with my injury. Um, but I'm not, I'm not really sure what, what my goals are in, in the future. You know, I started with the city a little bit older too. So after all the years of, of the forest service, um, 
I don't know. It's it it was a it was challenging for me too. It was totally challenging in a different way going to a city fire department and like our academy was was definitely challenging for me. Um, but yeah. <laughs> and are you on like uh like a ladder or like a like what like an engine or what type Yes. of like? So so I work. Uh, my my fire station now has. an engine. So it's a single house. There's four people. There's a captain um, up front and engineer driving. And then there's a firefighter EMT and a firefighter medic in the back. Um, and we all kind of have like specific roles and the way that we do things. Um, and then there's, and then we have fire stations that are called double houses where there's a, a ladder truck, um, which is, you know, like carries all the tools and everything like that, but typically not water. And then, and then the engine that has the hose and water. So like if there's a structure fire engine goes and they're going interior to the building. And then the ladder truck goes on top and cuts a hole in the roof for ventilation. Um, also if there's like, you know, vehicle rescues and stuff, all, all the, the heavy tools and equipment, the, the truck carries that stuff. That's pretty cool. Um, And is there, is there oh, anything go ahead. I haven't asked you that you think would be important to, uh, to include or to add? Um, no, I can't. <laughs> I feel like I've talked a lot, so I. <laughs> no, it's all good. And, uh, do you have like anything that you want to like promote or would you have any like social media or, or anything like that? No. I don't, I'm like, I don't have a lot of social media. I guess Nope. if I had anything, it would be like, uh, I don't know, spend time, spend, spend less time on the phone, spend more time outside with the younger people. <laughs> I agree. No, that's perfect. <laughs> well, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on my, uh, the late night history podcast. I hope you had, a as good as a time as I had. Yeah. Great. Thanks for having me.